This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Ladies and gentlemen, today on Crisis Talks, i am had the privilege of interviewing Senator Jim Molan, former general in the Australian Army. Jim Molan, thank you very much for joining us today on Crisis Talks. Grant, great to be here, mate, and I'm now an ex-senator, ex- but uh, it's very nice of you to call me a senator. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we hold some hope, without a doubt. We hold some hope that that's not the last hurrah in the political front, Jim. Yeah, I hope so. I certainly hope so. Well, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to come off a bit of a long run up here because you've certainly had an amazing career of service, both in the military and, and post. So please, please indulge me for a moment there whilst I go through some of the career highlights. So you've had a, a very distinguished life of service. Firstly, as an infantry, infantry officer in the Australian Army, which is very close to my heart, and more recently as a senator representing the Liberal Party. Some of those career highlights include commanding officer of the 6th Battalion, Army attaché, and then later the defence attaché, uh, Indonesia during the East Timor crisis, uh, brigade commander, commander one div, and in 2004 you deployed to Iraq where you served as a, I think it was the chief of staff operations, was it, Jim? It was. It was the chief of staff for operations. Yeah. And that was obviously during one of the most uh, intense and severe combat operations during the whole whole conflict. So. Um, and certainly over that time, you know, the, the, uh, the recognition of that. So the, firstly, your, your Distinguished Service Cross, uh, the American Legion of Merit were, were some of the awards that you've received over that journey. Member of the Order of Australia, Officer of the Order of Australia, um, and Order of the Star of Yuda Dharma, third class in Indonesia. So um, obviously a very distinguished career in the military. You later wrote about that, that experience, particularly the experience in Iraq, in the uh, 2008 book titled Running the War in Iraq. And more recently, then you've been serving and representing as a senator in the Liberal Party in New South Wales. So unfortunately, you missed out on re-election at that last federal election. Uh, among other things that, you're a pilot, you, know, you still hold some of your commercial and fixed-wing licences, you're a Bahasa linguist, a father of four, three daughters and a boy, and married to Anne, and one of your daughters, obviously, is uh, as a bit of a tidbit for everyone out there, is... Aaron Molan, who's made a wonderful career as a commentator on Channel 9 in rugby, and I'm sure that's much to you, a chagrin, being a great Aussie rules man, Jim. But uh, thank you very much for joining us today. So that's the long run-up, and today we're going to be talking a bit about, about service and leadership. So, Jim, how would you describe your leadership style, uh, given your different careers? Yeah, it's it's a question that I often get asked, and I spent some time as a public speaker for corporates on leadership, and it's a very, very personal 
thing, your own style. I'm, I'm not the biggest person in the world in relation to being able to specify the principles of leadership, but we all know it when we see it. It is blatantly obvious to everyone when there is a good leader around. And when I was talking to Staff College, I, I quite often spoke about my philosophy of generalship. And generalship is just leadership on battlefields. And the most the most important, the one that I always put first, there are about 10 of them, and the one, but the one I always put first was that you've got to be technically proficient. And in my case, that was to understand war, understand decision making, and understand the technicalities of how headquarters worked and interrelated with combat troops. So my style of, of, of leadership, other people can say what that is, but, the, but I always say that the first thing that you must be able to, to do as a leader is you must know your job. That is, you must be technically proficient. And sometimes you'll hear people in organisations saying, oh, the old characters that we used to have, you know, 20 years ago, they've all gone. Yeah, often they have gone. But I know that if I was working for someone who was the old character, you know, the old person who used to have five wines at lunchtime and 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 could talk the, the, the back leg off a dog, uh, I know that I would pre, pre, much prefer in this day and age to be working for or with someone who was technically proficient, who could do their job. And that's something that I have striven very hard to do. And, you know, you, you spoke about my career as a soldier, an author, a commentator, a speaker, a diplomat, a special envoy, a senator or a candidate. In each one of those, you've got, you need to have different styles of leadership and you need to have a totally different style of being technically proficient. But, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you uh, want people to follow you, if you want to influence people, then they've got to have confidence that in the military, they say to themselves, well, he's not likely to get me killed. Uh, in in, a, in a, a diplomatic area, people might say, well, you know, he can speak to the country. He, he, he knows what he's doing. He, he uh, can influence people. People listen to him. Uh, and as a senator, you've got to be very, very much part of a team, uh, but be pre but but have your own views and be prepared to step out now. And then I guess Grant as a, as a candidate is is a whole new level of leadership. How how does a candidate lead uh, a voting population in New South Wales of five and a half million people? That is a totally different situation than leading as chief of operations, a staff and an organisation on the battlefields of, of Iraq. And to me, it is, it is logical. You've got, to, you've got to know your job. You've got to be empathetic to people. You've got to know what you're doing in relation to relating to people and people have got to trust you. So I guess you could pull things out of that, but whatever I, it's interesting because whatever I did, and I've had so many different jobs and careers that there's got to be something basic to them all. And it was interesting because I suddenly found myself running as a candidate for five and a half million voters, guaranteed that at least half those voters wouldn't touch me with a barge pole. Uh, but that I needed a large number of the other of of that remaining half who who share who generally share my philosophy. To lead, you've got to contact people. You've got to have something to offer. Uh, you've got to be prepared to work hard. And uh, in doing that, I uh, uh, and I'll finish on this note for uh, in that in that candidature. Yes, I didn't get into the Senate. 
uh, I would have needed 600,000 votes to get a get a quota in the Senate. I got 137,000 votes, and that's the largest number of personal uh, primary votes that a political candidate has ever received in Australian political history. So whatever I was doing and however I was communicating with people uh, does seem to have worked in that respect. You said a bit before about the different types of leadership approaches throughout your career. I understand that and people evolve into those roles over time as well, but but how do you go about preparing yourself or how would you advise people to prepare themselves for those different roles? Because we're talking about situational leadership in a lot of those sort of, uh, those Absolutely. Sort of uh, ways you were talking before. How do you go about preparing yourself for those different types of situations? Well, I think you've got to be, be confident that you can be a leader to begin with. Uh, uh, and then through hard work, you've got to master the knowledge that you bring to the leadership position. When I was in the military, uh, I, I, my, my life was the profession of the military. And as I proceeded up the chain, the, the level of that, so a good platoon commander, company commander, battalion commander, brigade commander, division commander, and then chief of operation of an entire force. In every one of those, I worked very, very hard to master the detail. Uh, uh, you know, a, a commander should never get involved in the intimate detail. That's what staffs are for in the military or in business. Uh, the boss shouldn't be tied down by detail uh, and, and a lot of bosses allow themselves to be. It's very critical that you don't get tied down by detail, that you've got enough people working for you to release you to think. Uh, you can't think and you can't be intuitive unless you've got an amazing base of knowledge. And I, I remember when I was in Iraq, uh, I'd been there for about three months and one of my responsibilities was the Iraqi uh, oil production system in the country as chief of operations. That was one of my responsibilities to make sure that that worked for the simple reason that that was paying for the war uh, and the, the oil that was going out. And of course, the, 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 was, 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 the money was being held outside the country until uh, self-government came back to Iraq and that was paying for the war. Uh, so that was very, very important to us. And I remember that we had a change of ambassador and a change of, of, uh, com of, of uh, commanding general. And they asked me to take them each for a fly around Iraq and to speak to them during that flight of the nature of the Iraqi oil system. And I've been working on this for three months now, you know, for 20 hours a day, for seven days a week, for three months. And I suddenly realised halfway through the flight that bloody hell, I know an awful lot about this. And, I, you know, it's not as though I'd ever dealt with an oil system before, but in, in, in the military and in many, many industries, what you are is a problem solver. And, and this was just, you know, I just took it on as another problem. You know, uh, I was also responsible for the electricity system and also for the train system in Iraq. And they were just problems. And uh, that, like anything, a good problem can sol solver can solve just about, can at least be effective in trying to solve these problems. The scope of that role must have been so tremendous then. And you mentioned about staff and the role that they play. Um, how, how does that affect your leadership style though? Did you feel like more of a manager in that sort of a role? given the relationships then than a leader or how did you affect your own sort of personal personal leadership? Oh, no, you're, you're, you're always a leader in my view and uh, part of being a leader is being able to manage. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people that I led intimately, 
I think I had, I'd have to think it through. I think I had 20 US, I had three, three American one stars working for me and 20 US colonels working for me. And we ran two shifts a day, two 12 hour shifts a day in, in the, in the headquarters. So of those, I was definitely the leader. I commanded nothing, but like all chiefs of operations or chief operating officers in a, in a company, when you talk, most people will assume you're talking with the authority of your boss. So it carries some weight. You then got to make sure, of course, that what you say is in accordance with the, what, what the boss wants. And the boss has then got to be able to trust you to, to, to convey, even though you may not have had a specific conversation, to convey to the staff and to the subordinate commanders what he may not have had the chance to convey. Uh, and that is the detail of what he wants done. Uh, and and so, so, yeah, you're, I reckon you're always a leader, but if you, if you can't manage as being a leader, you'll never have time to do anything because you'll be crisis managing 24 hours a day. The, you, you mentioned before you were sort of pulling sort of 20-hour days throughout that routine. Was, I mean, how sustainable was that for you and, and how much of an effect can that have on you um, leading those operations? Well, I, I sustained it for a year, uh, a year less nine days uh, and um, seven days a week, an average of 20 hours a day and then every maybe once every fortnight I, uh, uh, the, the fighting would go over an evening, it would go over a night. So you may not have got any sleep at all. Uh, and I tried to get a bit of sleep in the afternoon, but that never worked. So I just gave it up. But I, I've got to say, I think I was very well prepared uh, by our military training, the training that you and I have experienced over many years. I mean, you don't go on exercises in Australia or on operations in order to get a good night's sleep. Uh, and you know, you, you, you got to, you, you, the, the one thing that I have found is that as people got tired and tired, uh, as people got more and more tired and more and more exhausted, uh, the, what the boss has got to do uh, and what I always did was to be, ex to, to increase the level of politeness uh, and uh, you, you, in speaking to people, in those situations where everyone, probably not as many people were working as long hours as I was because I was a one-off. Most people, there are at least two of them. Uh, and for most of my time, I was just a one-off uh, 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 one uh, kind of position. And so I would try and spread myself over the two shifts that we were working. And then because I had authority in relation to time-sensitive targeting and other things like that, if I got to bed at midnight, you know, I could be up at two o'clock uh, conducting the most, the most important aspect of my job, which was killing people. And to do that, I've long since understood what being tired yet talking to people is about. And although my family would quite possibly say I didn't apply it at home, uh, uh, I have always applied it. And I think it is critical that as, as you get tired and people around you get tired, you have got to increase the level of politeness. As a leader, you can show displeasure about someone who's failed to do something, but you can never go the next step and raise your voice or get abusive. Uh, and you, you, you act, you, you know, you, you counsel, you, you warn your counsel, uh, and then you act on people who can't do the job, but you never indulge yourself by, by abuse or loud voices or, uh, as others have done, throwing things, you know, 
uh, I think that is very, very basic. But the other thing that I'd say about being exhausted yet having to do a job is checklists. As a pilot, I live and breathe checklists, checklists and there's a reason for that. You know, uh, and the reason is that if you are tired, you just you you know you you can assist yourself by saving your intellectual uh, horsepower uh, for important things and not for not not for the things you can solve with a checklist. Well, what was your checklist? Oh, I had a I had a I had a number of them, uh, 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 and and they were they went from in fact. Uh, getting out of bed and and getting to uh, and getting into the vehicle that was taking me to the office, which was about a five minute trip away. But I would go from a a deep sleep to to time sensitive targeting in in a couple of minutes. Uh, and the checklist I had then was that uh, when I when I would get undressed and I put all my equipment down in one in the, in one place in a series of in a straight. I mean it's 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 uh, it's only retentive. But it's critical. It's like you and I as infantrymen, that that you know, when we would sleep at night and on the ground, we knew where we would put things, because you know every time you've got to move at night, this it's patterns, and I'm I patterns are very very important for all of us in life. Um, that they shouldn't drive you because patterns can obviously be wrong, but they're always a good starting point. But there, there was a there was a great. I worked for a guy called General George Casey. And General Casey was a four-star American general. And I, I, I learned a number of things from him. He had been a four-star before he came to the US. He was deputy army commander in the US. You know, only a million people under his command. He went from, from uh, the US, from, from Iraq to command the, uh, the US army. And one of, the, one of the interesting things that he used to say was, uh, when a problem, you know, his his life was a constant series of people walking through his through his door with a problem, and uh, he used to have a personal quick self brief series, and that self brief, and I adopted it uh, over in Iraq. I, I haven't used it since, I must admit, although I may have I may have internalised it and used it in that way. But his what he said was. Uh, his personal quick self briefers. When someone brings you a problem, saying, "You know, the sky is falling, uh, General. What what would you like us to do about it?" He would he would just he would take himself through three steps. He'd, he would say to himself, "Okay, you've you've given me a brief on what's going on. You've you've specified the problem." He'd say, "This is what I know," and he would repeat that back to uh, the briefers, to his staff, or to a board, or what whatever it might be the equivalent in civilian life. He'd say, he'd say, this is what I know. This is what I am thinking at the moment of doing. And this is what I don't know. So those three things are fascinating because this is, it goes intimately to what you and I, Grant, would know as the intuitive decision-making process in the military. When you say, this is what I know, and you say it to your staff, you're making sure that what they have said, what they think they've said to you and what they actually said to you, what you actually heard and what you think you heard are the same thing. Then he says, this is what I think. So you then try things out with your staff. So, you know, if the sky is falling uh, and you, you, you're all squared away that everyone knows why the sky is falling, if you say, this is what I think, you'd say, well, you know, couldn't we get some bloody things to prop the sky up with or couldn't we move out of the way of the sky? Or, and, and 
So you've got a bit of a, a war game going on then. And the last step was, this is what I, and, and then the staff can say to you, no boss, it's not the real Sky that's talking about, it's, it's the television station called Sky that we're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, you, 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 you're increasing the chances of not misunderstanding the situation. And the last step is, this is what I don't know. And, you know, a very quick think can tell you what you don't know. And maybe the staff forgot to tell you, or maybe no one knows it. Therefore, you can specify that someone finds it out from your point of view. So this is what I know. This is what I think. And this is what I don't know. To me, are the keys to the first step. That's a great little checklist. It's a brilliant checklist. And when you're exhausted, and, and Casey did this for years. He did a couple of years in Iraq. I only did a year. He did a couple of years. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, you, you've got to have that resilience, that personal resilience. Applying that then uh, in, in any sort of environment, that decision-making, those three steps, so what I know, what I'm thinking, what I don't know, just becomes an amazing little... Uh, little tool that people can then use for, for making their own big decisions. But that goes to the next question, Jim. What was probably the most difficult decision decision that you had to make uh, in your time over there? Um, yeah, I think the most difficult decisions were decisions related to um, time-sensitive targeting. Uh, and the, 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 I, I went into some detail in the book and I was permitted to go into some detail in the book that I wrote, Running the War in Iraq, which if people are interested is still available on Amazon. Uh, and I, I go into a, a, a surprising amount of detail, but I did that with, with permission of the Americans and the Australians. Uh, and it's, it's worth a read because... Uh, what time-sensitive targeting is is it's a manifestation of the entire uh, the entire intelligence system of an army deployed in the field, of all the sensors, of all the intelligence that flows from every source around the world about what is going on in Iraq, and it brings that together and it presents it's that information in a way which can then be acted on. But to act on it, you must act on it from an ethical base. You must act morally and act ethically in doing it. And for example, you might be following people for weeks, individuals, and we don't go into too much detail on that, but individuals might pop up on the on, on screens, might pop up through, through intelligence or on satellites or whatever. And uh, a number of them may come together. And, and often they did come together because we dominated other means of communication. So they had to meet. The meeting was very, a, a great opportunity for us to, uh, to, to take them out, to remove them as the leaders of local areas or, or, or a number of regions. You know, as this in intelligence came together, during the day we would be briefed, I would be briefed, there'd be, I had a link into this intelligence organisation. He'd come up to me, Chief of Targeting, and he'd say, Boss, we've got we've got this this line of investigation is occurring. It probably won't occur today, but we've got two that may occur today or tonight sometime. And we then have a talk about what we might do, how we might handle it, uh, where we might all be, and how we could get together and do it during the day. Invariably, they came together at night because that's when most of the meetings occurred. So I would I would hopefully get to bed at eleven or twelve o'clock at night, and these things might come up at any time. Invariably, at two o'clock in the morning. And we had a standard that we had to go through all the procedures to do this ethically and morally and legally within that 40 minutes and then have struck a target 
with whatever we wanted to strike the target with within that 40 minutes. The 40 minutes was our standard. Sometimes we were more, sometimes we were less. And everything we did then went back onto our intraweb and that would go back to the Secretary of Defence's office where his staff would examine it and we would then get, he would be briefed on it and we would then get a letter back down saying, you know, why did it take you so long to do this or do that? Why did you miss this or that? So uh, not, it was not just the killing of people, but it was the achievement of the aim, which was a, an operational aim. That is, we wanted to destroy the leadership of the insurgency and of the terrorist leadership. Uh, that they were the series of the operational decisions that for me personally were the hardest. The attack on Fallujah was probably the most complicated thing that I was involved in because I, I was responsible for the shaping of the battlefield up until the core, which was, you know, 125,000 people took over on the actual assault. Not all the core assaulted, but they were responsible. I worked down into the core. Plus, we coordinated the entire force through the traditional military means of coordination. And that was that was difficult, but it didn't, prov- didn't show me the ethical or moral or legal problems that complicate matters because they were the, that we, we assumed they were all in place, we checked they were all in place, then we handed that, the actual fighting down to the core who did the fighting. So, yeah, uh, and I guess the third thing I think about is, is the, other, the other thing that always complicates issues is the human factor, whether you're working with people, whether you're not confident that people are doing the right job, whether you're, you don't have confidence in, your, in certain peers, etc. And that brings a level of tension into everything. Yeah, human factors in any decision making yep. and in any response, I think has been a, it was a really interesting topic to discuss with Bill Bestick um, in, oh, yes. in a recent episode. So he's now an anaesthetist and was previously an NZ uh, SAS officer and mm. a ransom negotiator. So uh, we, we spoke a bit all about that sort of cognitive dis- dissonance and human factors in decision making there, but... I mean, how did you see that sort of really being applied? You know, that's an extreme pressure situation, uh, often when you're fatigued um, and going through your process. um, You know, how did others around you handle that? And did you see those human factors really affecting the performance in those those really time-critical moments? Um, Yes, you could see it every second of the day. I had the greatest faith in the, I think there were five fighting divisions below uh, below the, the, the theatre headquarters, which was the coalition headquarters. And uh, the, the, those, those, those fighting divisions were uh, the American ones and the British ones were, were masterpieces of military preparedness. So you didn't have people in them as commanders or staff or soldiers who were going to break down and, 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 and not be able to handle the pressure. I, I guess if I'm talking about my peers... Uh, you don't get into a big headquarters like that unless you, uh, unless you have a big ego. Uh, you, you've, you've, you know, to me, an ego is self-confidence. Uh, you, you know you can do the job uh, and, uh, and therefore, you're, you're, therefore you're one of the commanding generals. And we had seven, we had seven of these divisions from memory across the headquarters uh, and uh, everyone was headed by someone with a significant ego. Uh, and, and that's life. That's what you want. So I didn't see it as a problem. I just saw it as the inevitability of human beings getting together to do things. Oh, and at the top of their game. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. We're, we're talking about yes. and, at the top and, of their and game. That's right. And you've got to make that decision. Are they at the top of their game or 
uh, do they just think they are? And you may have to plug in other things around them. That, <laughs> that's, what, that's, that, that's, that's what managers and leaders always do. Yeah, yeah, no, you're too right. That's uh, it, that's a fascinating insight. I mean, you, you mentioned before about um about your experience in East Timor, and that's something that was certainly personal for me, given given the deployment there. I had a chance to meet you earlier that year. I think it was in '99 uh, when we deployed over on it was an exchange program, exercise Katika exchange. So we had a chance to meet earlier that year. Next time I think I saw you was when we we jumped off the planes in Dili. And you were there with Ken Brownrigg as a as a reception for us coming into country. Can you can you take us behind the curtain a bit on on that whole East Timor crisis in '99 and and how that evolved and and your sort of role in shaping that um, to have a safe engagement for us as we rolled in. Well, uh, and I would always start off something like that by by referring to the person that you just referred to, Ken Brownrigg, who who did a who was the Army attaché at the time. I was the Defence attaché, and. Ken's ability to, uh, he was a colonel, I was a brigadier, Ken's ability to communicate, relate, know was fabulous. And as a, as a field officer, uh, he, was, he was second to none. Uh, but th- yes, it was a fascinating thing. It's the, the first significant deployment of Australian troops in the region for some considerable period of time. Yes, we'd been to Cambodia and places like that. Uh, and it really marked a change between... Australia acting in its own interests and us just uh, trotting overseas every time our great and powerful friends called us. Uh, And uh, we led it. Peter Cosgrove led it with brilliance. John Howard, I think, made all the right decisions and he realised that uh, that you can use the military for good, but it's got to be a military which is well-equipped, is balanced, and is big enough to do whatever we wanted to do. And uh, the Labor Party had not learned that. And when they went back into government after John Howard's time, they hurt the ADF severely uh, by reducing its its ability to invest in its future. And we still haven't recovered from this, but we started to after six years of coalition government. So these things are political. Jakarta Embassy was an interesting embassy in that essentially the military was running the country. Therefore, the role of the military uh, in the embassy in Jakarta was quite different than any other part of the world. And I, I think I had, I, I forget the exact numbers, I think I had 14 staff working for me in the embassy, which made me the biggest defence section outside of the US and Britain. And all of those, uh, all, all of the military members of the staff, Army, Navy and Air Force, were linguists, very well-trained linguists. We could all speak and we had all invested time and we had all we knew a lot about Indonesia, and in that period of time, I advised the ambassador. We had some superb ambassadors. John McCarthy was a an extraordinary person in his ability to, uh, from a standing start, to understand what was going on and to be able to make good decisions. And and the way the embassy ran was very very good. I haven't I, I was exposed to it recently again when I was the prime minister's special envoy and I was I worked with Greg Moriarty who who was the ambassador yes up up there in in Jakarta. We uh, we cannot take for granted the brilliance of those people. Oh, like, Abs- I, had, abs- I had first hand experience with Greg. Um, he was yep. Uh, crisis coordinator for the government at the time of the Sundance air crash over in oh right and his role in that was phenomenal so and I know he went went on later to become the um, become the ambassador over there didn't he 
he did, and now he's of course the Secretary of, of Defence, and and he's been an, uh, he's had uh, key jobs in between. But you know, you only get to that stage of competence by long exposure and, and doing things. And these guys do it. We in the military knock DFAT, but uh, I tell you what, they're young. They're young diplomats are very very good, and the ones who get to the top uh, are superb. In, in it is. The generalisation are very, very good. So you put all those people together, you get a you get a group of people in a country that know what they're talking about in relation to the country. Therefore, even in this day of of internet and social media, still the best view of that country intimately is made by judgments made by the ambassador uh, and and his staff. And uh, we've just seen that in relation to uh, President Trump and the judgments made by the British ambassador to Washington, uh, which were leaked. And we saw, we saw the importance of that. We also saw the importance of security because, you know, whoever leaked that has done nothing for the relationship between the US and the UK or the Western world. Uh, all they've done is harm relationships. Of course, ambassadors are required to give uh, 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 advice, classified advice to the government in exactly the state as to exactly the state of the nation they're answering to. But, you know, uh, by the by the leaking of those documents, you have destroyed a significant relationship that we cannot afford to be without. So that's what we did all the time. Plus, when there were the, the, the uh, Sahata government fell, and in that fall, leading up to East Timor, there were there extraordinary violence across across uh, Jakarta and uh, that we were involved in that on an intimate basis. We're out in the streets every day with the, with the riot police reporting on the safety of Australians, reporting to the government because we could do it. We knew, we knew how to do it. We were very good on the streets. Then of course, East Timor came up much to everyone's surprise and it came faster than we thought. And I, I had input uh, either directly or through my ambassador into all the planning. And then at my recommendation, I said, I'll take five people and go down. Now, the fact that we had such good relations with the Indonesian military enabled us to do that because they wanted someone down there that they could, that, that could look after all the Westerners, uh, all the people that we had agreements with to evacuate. So we went down there to do that and, and we brought you guys in uh, and at the same time. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was an extraordinary experience because... You know, you you got to be able to do all of this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, a, a, diplomat's, uh, a diplomat may not be that good at doing what we did down there. Uh, and what we did was, well, I, I, to this day, and I, I, I keep encouraging Ken Brownrigg to write the history of the place from his point of view. I ain't going to do it because I've written my book and that's it. Uh, but, but Ken could write an extraordinary book about what we did on a day-to-day -day basis. And anyone who thinks that we as military diplomats were on the cocktail scene at any stage, you know, I had five years in Indonesia and real diplomats are out there all the time working with people uh, and, and, and knowing people and doing things. And when there, is a, when there is a crisis, I was primarily a soldier and I could do things because I was a soldier. You obviously moved from, from that military service into, into political service and how have you found personally the, the, the differences between the leadership styles? You mentioned some of it before, but how you find the differences in the, in the, in the, in the way that you demonstrate leadership in, in the political life versus what you did in military life? Well, 
Uh, the, 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 the main difference, I believe, is that I moved into an area where I had absolutely no credibility. No one, no one knew me and I didn't know what I was doing. And we can knock politicians left, right and centre, and we always do. It's a good Australian pastime. <laughs> uh, but the skills which, which politicians have should never be taken for granted. Now, a lot of those skills may relate to, their, to them continuing to exist as politicians. That is, getting re-elected, uh, uh, managing the factionalism within their own organisation uh, and managing where they sit. But, but that's no different than any other corporation. It might be different in magnitude, but it happens in every corporation. It happens in the military. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've you, you got to be able to always bet on self-interest. And, uh, but again, that's no different. So, so I, uh, uh, I, I ran for uh, pre-selection, ran for election back in 2016, uh, and then I got in because of a Section 44 citizenship situation. Um, I had to create trust, I believe, amongst my colleagues that I shared exactly what I did in Iraq, that I shared their aims and that I could do my job. And in the first year or so that I was there, I think I did that. I was then, it was, and, and I achieved, I believe, an awful lot in, in, in those areas. I achieved uh, a considerable amount in areas such as um, uh, on the nuclear debate, on the issue of boats, on foreign ownership, on media, on fuel resilience. I, I was on every committee you could poke a bloody stick at, you know, because we didn't have enough senators. But the best one I was on was uh, the Parliamentary Joint Committee Intelligence and Surveillance, chaired by Andrew Hastie. Uh, I was the chair of the Defence Subcommittee, and I'm ashamed to say that the first thing I did on the Defence Subcommittee was recommend that it be disbanded because it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was not effective in any way, shape or form. I was on the Legal and, and, and Constitutional Committee. I did estimates regularly. I was on Education and Unemployment, and I conducted, as the Deputy Chair, an inquiry into stillbirth. Now, you know, that is fabulous stuff absolutely fabulous stuff and I, and that's that was it's an 18 months that i am so thankful and i and i have i came away from it with great respect for my colleagues i may have a few problems with the party machine in new south wales but i have a great respect for my colleagues because it's a crap job they work very very hard but it's essential to what we do and i had hoped to have gone from that base of credibility to, to the next couple of years where I could achieve the big thing I wanted to achieve, which is the national security strategy. Uh, uh, I've had a minor hiccup and that's all it is. <laughs> you know, uh, the fact that I, that, that, that I, for various reasons, I wasn't pre-selected in a winnable position, took me to an area where I campaigned as an individual uh, and I, as well as supporting the government in everything the government was doing. Uh, and 137,000 plus New South Wales voters seemed to believe that what I was doing was correct. So you, you put all that together and there, there are unique things about leadership and about being effective as a, as a politician. And I was impressed with my, with my colleagues. Uh, I, I, I've invested in the basics of it. I think it'd be a shame now uh, that is, I, there's, a, there's a certain amount of trust that, I, that I've got and a certain amount of respect I think I've got from my colleagues, most of them, some of them, and, and I've now, I've now got to get back in and achieve what I want to achieve in a period of time. And then I've now failed retirement, Grant, three times, <laughs> and I'm, I'm arcing up to fail at the fourth time. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of us who are very supportive of you and wanting to see you in that realm um, are probably a bit concerned about the, the, the state of leadership in politics. Uh, can you give us any reassurances that that, that, uh, that we can be comfortable or we should be confident in what uh, the leadership that we've got within all of the political parties? No, I can't give it to you for all of the political parties because I don't believe the leadership of the Greens and the Labor Party is good. Uh, there are individuals in the Labor Party that I get on very, very well with and I have great respect for, but I don't believe in what they believe in. In our own party, as John Howard used to say at Northam, we're a broad church. We have a left, a centre and a right. I've got to say that the leadership that I see when I look at the leadership at the moment, the leadership group at the moment, uh, I, I think is is extraordinarily good. I have been saying, I first worked with Scott Morrison uh, across 2011 and 12 when I was asked to come in by the Liberal Party and write their defence strategy with a couple of other people, their defence policy with a couple of other people. I then became involved in the in writing the strategy to achieve the government stop the boats policy with Scott Morrison. And I used to look at him and I, I, I thought to myself, you know, we pay millions of dollars having schools and giving experience to generals to be good leaders, yet Morrison had this leadership. Where did he get it from? Well, I don't know, but he had it. He was very, very good. He, he, he allowed freedom for people to do things. He trusted people. Uh, he was decisive when he had to be decisive and he knew things. Uh, and uh, he's carried that through in social services in uh, as treasurer and now as prime minister. So I have extraordinary confidence in him as our leader and that will flow down. You know, he has the potential to be the John Howard of the future, to do a long time as prime minister. Uh, and, you know, politics is, 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 is an extraordinary uh, situation to, to, to be working in. But it's also so important that we rely on these people. Uh, Grant, I, I, I have a lot of faith in, a, in our people uh, and I, I would never encourage the Greens or the Labor to improve the standard of their leadership. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, the, for such a distinguished career that you've had across, across a number of different uh, fields of expertise, is there anything that you would have done differently and... Um, and that maybe maybe you regret as a decision. Yeah, I, I, th there are, but I wouldn't go public on it. There are certain things that I would have done differently in politics over the last eighteen months had I known what I was talking about. Uh, but you know, uh, I, I'm uh, 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 I don't have the intuitive knowledge that many of my colleagues have. I, I don't have the time in my life to make the errors and come back. Uh, but I have a philosophy that I that I I spend a lot of time, and I have in the past, thinking of my own personal weaknesses and inadequacies. But I'm not telling anyone about them <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I guess I, I, I was fairly happy about what I did in Iraq, uh, how I worked in Iraq and the end product of our time in Iraq. Uh, not, not, not the war itself, but my time in that year in Iraq and what I contributed. Um, it, it, uh, so I don't think, you know, I don't think, to, I don't look back on anything and say, and say, you know, I wish I'd done A, B or C when I did D. Uh, I'm fairly happy at where I am, but I, but I, and, I, and I forgive myself for the errors that I have made in a political sense because I just did not know. Uh, and and 
uh, because I, I think because I was a bit older than most people and everyone said, oh, he's a general, he knows everything. I was, you know, I, I, I was not advised in certain ways to do things. And looking back, that, that, was a, that was a real trap for young players and people have exploited that in a political sense. But no, I can't, I, I don't sit around and be, you know, I've had an extraordinary life. Well, I mean, what a life. <laughs> and I'm surrounded by a, a, a family of, 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 a, of a wife and, and four children who are, who are, you know, they're, they're doing very, very well. They, they're all in jobs. They all pay tax. They all own houses, the four of them. And they are relatively conservative in their political views. <laughs> I mean, mate, what more could you ask? What um, one question I've been asking everyone that's been part of Crisis Talks is, you know, if there's anyone out there that you could, you know, who's either past or is currently still around, who you'd love to sit down and have a chat to, either about leadership or, or a crisis event that they've been through themselves, uh, who would you choose? Gee, that's a that's a that's a big question, and um, uh, th- there's. N- in, in every crisis that, that I've, I've in every in every situation that approximated a crisis I've been in, uh, family has been the major the major backup to me. I, I have a degree of confidence in my own ability to manage uh, a crisis, uh, but to know about the crisis and to know of the options of what you might do, you've got to talk to everyone. Uh, I, I, I don't have uh, an overall mentor. There are people that I've admired in the, in the Australian military greatly, uh, but I don't have an overall mentor that I could go to now. I, I'm in the strange situation where I where I can I could go in and talk to a whole range of my colleagues politically, but I'd be asking them more factual questions and more opinions. The my ability to manage my own crises, I'm I'm content with, uh, and I've learned an awful lot. So so. You know, I, I I can't give you a name or anything like that. You've got to you've got to, as I am doing at the moment, talk to absolutely everyone to find out, to convince, to to create trust. And I've just been through it with one hundred and thirty seven thousand people. How you talk to people is different ways, but uh, there's there's no one person. You know, it's not as though I could go back to a, a president or a prime minister or another general and, and sit down with them at this stage of the game. I think that's just the nature of modern military service. Well, we certainly look forward to uh, to seeing what that next chapter looks like for you, Jim. And, and we want to thank you for your service over the over the many years, both from the military side, where I had the privilege of working working around you or working, working underneath you, and then later now seeing you in the uh, political sphere. We hope that's not the end of Jim Mullen and it doesn't sound like it will be. So, Jim, thank you very much for joining us on Crisis Talk. Thank you, Grant. And, and these are good, great opportunities to talk about things and think about things that you don't get too often. So I thank you. Thanks, mate. Much appreciated. That concludes Episode 10 of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, we unpack the Sandpapergate scandal. We'll go behind the scenes with Earl Eddings, the chairman of Cricket Australia, and discuss what happened behind the scenes from a crisis management perspective and how they went about recovering the reputation of Australian cricket.